0: Welcome along to the Go Play Soccer podcast with host Manchester United Academy coach Tom Statham. At Go Play, our aim is to bring people together from all across the world to discuss the beautiful game.
1: Tom Statham here and today on the Go Play Soccer podcast, we're talking goalkeeping with two former professional keepers, Paul Reshupka and Neil Thompson. And if you would like to make any comments or ask questions about our goalkeeper special podcast, please send an email to podcast at goplaysoccer.com. Now we've got an unusual situation here because Paul was born in California and now lives in the northwest of England, while Neil was born in the northwest of England and now lives in California. So firstly, going over to to, uh, Paul here in the northwest of England. Um, Now, you played for around about 20 professional clubs and you know, you had a really good career. We first met in the mid-90s when you were a schoolboy player and I was a young coach at Manchester United. But how difficult was it for you to move from California
0: and settle in England? It's funny you said I've never actually, I don't think I played in the States. played everywhere else, but not actually played a, like what I call a proper game in the States. So I moved when I was young. Uh, so I was seven when I moved to uh, Stockport, sunny Stockport. Kind of went to school here, got the English accent. Um, used to go back every summer see family uh, and kind of you know get spoiled and live on the beach and all that. Which uh, sure Neil's enjoying now. That doesn't happen in Stockport anymore. But uh, no, it's quite easy for me to settle in. This is this is home. This is roots. You know, I've got roots in uh, in Cheshire now, shall say. And uh, say so that that was it. Playing football, I was. Uh, Started in Stockport Metro League and kind of grew up with there with, uh, I think, Danny Webber. And you went on to play in the England under-16s with Danny as well? Yeah, yeah. we said ended up in Nigeria, playing in the 99 Youth World Cup. Uh, so, yeah, got to got to play literally all over the world, but I don't think I've played. I nearly had an opportunity to sign for the, the Red Bulls. Neil Warnock was trying to get me out of Leeds and he was like, come on, off you go. And then the other way, Neil... I'd imagine it was really difficult
1: going from Carlisle to Los Angeles.
2: That really pushed me, yeah. <laughs> no, the, uh, the definite definitely change of pace. I mean, originally I'm from Workington, which is like right on the on the on the coast the on the northwest of uh, Cumbria, and um, yeah, grew up uh, grew up playing for Carlisle, and yeah, definitely a massive change of pace living in like, living in Hollywood to uh, compared to Cumbria. And what was life like for you, Neil, as a professional goalkeeper? It was interesting, really—a bit of a short-lived, I'd say, and a, a bit of a, a bit of a journeyman in, in some regards. I, that's what I was finding myself becoming. I started off at Carlisle United, I got got myself a nice little loan move when I was uh, nineteen to Hull City, which was kind of a bizarre one because not many players go up the leagues in a loan. Um, so that that was nice uh, to to go and. Sit behind uh, guys like Boaz Myhill and and learn from from them, and then ended up bouncing around. After you know, went the following season, ended up going out uh, to League of Wales, and then finding myself going from League of Wales to back into League Two, and and then just playing part time. Paul Fairclough brought me to Barnet for a short period, and then after that, I slipped into non-league football and, and made the decision to. Well, I didn't make the decision. I got the opportunity to come to America. I just thought it was a better option to um, to go for something a little bit more stable, and uh, and the, and again, the fact of coming to to the US kind of opened my eyes a little bit as well. So yeah, made so that. Special. What was
1: your first experience in the
2: US then, Neil? I actually had it uh, booked and ready to go that I was coming to play in the USL, and then something that I got on a phone call with with a guy that I actually just met for the first time, all these years later but basically I got a phone call saying like, Hey, you do realize there's a, there's an international player limit. And back then there was only three and I knew that there was four of us getting on the plane to go. <laughs> so I, uh, I made a, I made a couple of calls and found out that I could, uh, Mark Cartwright, who used to be the director at Stoke, him and a guy called Dave Thornley got me an opportunity to go to, uh, to get a scholarship, uh, in, in the States and she, in a school, a small school in Chicago, uh, there's the different affiliations, right? There's the NCAA and then there's the NAIA. Uh, I got, because I couldn't get through the clearinghouse. they got me into the NAIA school, which is called Judson University. And, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up coming across because. So that, that was the start of your journey in the States. And then
1: back to, to Paul, because your, your journey into full-time football really started in 1997 when you signed as an apprentice at Manchester United. And, uh, in those days and today, really, you, you, the, the apprentices or the scholars, as they're called now, have to balance the the football with um, a little bit of education as well. And and how did that work out for you, balancing football and education when you were training as a goalkeeper
0: at Manchester United? Being a goalkeeper, there wasn't goalkeeper coaches as there are now. You know what it was like, Tommy. It was very limited resources in terms of when we started because we're going back a long time, and it. It's grown so much since then, obviously, but uh, it was it was more about the best lads playing, getting good quality coaching, better facilities, and say so it's still like that, but it was a it was a big step up from Stockport Metro League. We made a Dave, I think Dave Bushell made a deal with my school where I could go in on a Monday morning and train uh, with the goalkeepers. So we had Alan Hodgkinson come in and coach the the goalies and see so talking the whole goalies at the club, like Peter Schmeichel, Raymond Van der Gaal. there was loads at the time, Paul Gibson, uh, Pilkington, Colkin, Sadler, Marsh, like myself, there was loads of us in. And we'd go in on a Monday morning and then i have to go to school in the afternoon. Right. Bear in mind there's no social media, no camera phones, nothing that you know, people, you know, not say go back in, be absolutely knackered and my mates all going, what have you been doing? And yeah. it was coming up to Christmas one year. And It was like all the apprentices were off and I'd gone in and ended up playing in 11 v 11 with the team that went on to win the treble. So it's that squad, like I'm crossing balls in, playing right wing because they needed an extra player for like Teddy Sheringham and Solskjaer to head in. And that was, then I had to go train, I had to go back to school. French, and everyone's trying to like go. Oh, why? What's going on with you? And you're like, well, there's no point in me telling them because no one believed me. No one's going to believe so, it. So
1: you, you spent your mornings with with the legends of Manchester United, yeah. um, in goal and and playing down the wing as well. And yeah. then in the afternoon, you had to go and uh, go to school and do subjects.
0: Yeah, but it was like, and that was the thing was. And then it come the end of my apprenticeship, I got offered a one year professional contract. So I was like wasn't happy. I knocked on the door to the boss, Sir Alex. <laughs> I'm not happy. I'm playing England youth team. Uh, I think I deserve a bit more. The the out of town lads always got sorted, and uh, the local lads didn't always get treated the same. Well, it had it had advantages in different ways, but uh, in terms of contracts, you got you know we all got offered a one year contract the local lads because it was the changeover from the two-year YT to the three-year apprenticeship with the under-19s football. So it was a bit, it was more technicality than it being that. So I thought, right, I'll I'll leave it for a year. I'll just be a year older going to the States and see what happens. Anyway, six months later, I made my debut in the World Club Championships. So it was kind of like worth leaving to see what happens. But it was, you know, an outcome, chatting to the boss, going, What's going on? Am I going to play? You know, it's a point in me taking this one, year, you know, one-year deal, and he goes, "If you play in my reserves, I'll, I'll look after you." Got a few games in the reserves, and you know, say, so kind of delayed it and delayed it, and twenty years down the line, I was still delaying getting a proper job. Yeah, so you're you're living a normal life now,
1: Paul, but but Neil is very much still in the world of uh, soccer over in the states, um, coaching, running his own. Company, big cat, goalkeeping, and uh, also your your sports agency as well. But what was the what was the transformation like, Neil, from being a player to to them being a coach? How did you find that?
2: It, it wasn't like a, a dead. It, it wasn't like I was a footballer and then I became an accountant. I was a footballer and then made a transition into using football to to pay for my scholarship. So then he was a footballer slash student. And then on top of that, I had the, I started doing the coaching. So uh, I did my coaching badges when I was at, at Carlisle. The, the PFA came in. I don't know if they were doing that, if they have done that forever or if I just happened to be unique to that. Yeah, they still do that.
1: PFA it's is still yeah. active in that,
2: yeah. And uh, so I got my level two back then. And then, which is funny story. Not a funny story, but...
1: Well, I yeah. hope it's a funny story. It'd be really right. good, Neil, if you could tell us a funny story.
2: Right. Okay, so... All of our paperwork for our all of our paperwork for our level two course, right, was all kept at the club, right. Well, it's like we're young lads; we're like sixteen years old, so no one's doing this work. Like no one's doing all the paperwork and logging all their hours properly and putting all the session plans and and everything else. But I, what we would do is we would go in and coach the. the we didn't have an academy at Carlisle; we had what was called a, a centre of excellence. So we would go back and coach the kids, and we were kids ourselves, right? But we would go and coach the younger kids um in the evenings because we lived in digs. So we were supposed to log all of these hours. And uh yeah basically it comes to the end of the end of the course, TFA coming in like maybe within two weeks. We're supposed to have our, all these hours logged 60 hours which it's a lot of hours when you're coaching when you're playing right and uh but then Carl got flooded. Oh no Remember when Carlisle got flooded and he was like yeah, yeah, Carlisle's always he was always getting, getting flooded, flooded. So how get like, funded every year. All I'm saying is that all my work was done, and that's where I got. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's how it's got to coaching. So then, when I came to America, it was just one of those things where it's like, well, what am I going to do to make to make ends meet? I've got this full scholarship. Yeah, that's great, but I need to I need to have something else and keep me involved in the game and and whatever. So I started off just coaching very. Um, you know, just very lightly, just for a bit of pocket money. And then I got my leg broke. Uh, so basically I got told by the doctor, like, look, you're going to be out for at least a, a, at least a year. Uh, you, you know, when you get back playing, you might not be playing at the at a level that you feel, you know, what like, like, like you're used to. Um, so, yeah, I suggest that you start looking at other options. So I started taking coaching a lot more seriously. That's when I opened Big Cat Goalkeeping back in the... Uh, I got I got my leg broken in 2010. I, I opened it officially in 2011, but I started the process in 2010.
1: Uh, that sounds great, and I, I'm, I want to move away from sunny California and go back to rainy Manchester in the in the late 90s with, with you, Paul. And and you mentioned training with Peter Schmeichel and and another lads like Nick Culkin. You now, what was your relationship like with
0: with those guys, with Schmeichel and Culkin? Yeah, say so like in terms of the goalkeepers' union. It's very much, you know, alive and well, and you, you speak to each other regularly but like lots of different things uh, in terms of what's going on, you know, just gossip and stuff. And uh, so I got a story about Nick and phoned me up. I was like, oh, what do you want? And he goes, oh, I need you to play in a game for me. I said, I'll play in a game. You're <laughs> right doing that. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, mate. Whatever, you know, like not a problem. Uh, when is it? He goes, it's in July, first week of July. i was like, oh, I might be pre-season, but if I'm not. It's not a problem. And uh, I said, "Okay, fine, let me know. And he goes, right. So 11 v 11, playing like former Liverpool players against former Man United players. And it's in Melbourne, like Australia. (laughs) Not Melbourne, Darbyshire. I was like, you what? I was like, yeah, yeah. So anyway, played the game, not a problem. Had a great trip out there. Coming back. We're on the plane back and uh, Rennie Molstein's on the plane. So we've stopped in Dubai and we're flying from Dubai to Manchester and I'm with a couple of other lads. It's like, oh, we better go speak to him and say hi and see what he's up to because I've not seen him for years. Anyway, he was coming back from India and uh, he was, uh, he'd was just done the draw, the draft for the Indian ISL uh, and uh, he'd just done it and he's like, what's going on? And he's like, right, Chatting away like he does, and he's got like all these things out. He's going, right, how would how do you think it'd work? If I have Wes Brown at the bottom of a diamond and I have Berbatov <laughs> at the top of a diamond in midfield, think it'd work? It's like, yes, Rennie, of course it will. What'll be a problem? <laughs> and uh he goes, What do you think? And I was like, We just Wes came on the trip to play with us. So I was like, But Wes it going on the plane afterwards, should you say? I was like, well, well we'll let him we'll let him know. So we dropped we were like messaging, where's we playing in India? We go out and play for him. This is what Rennie's thinking. And Rennie's uh where's his text back and he goes, I'll go if Paul goes. Right. And I was like, like having a laugh and a joke. And anyway, finished all it off and then the next day I get a call going, like, you know, would you be seriously interested in going? The goal like, you know, the goalie in terms of what we want to do, you know, would fit well with you know, a person of your position. So I think like, that's how I ended up out in India. So I've gone to play this game out in Australia because Nick's like done his backing and can't play in it. And uh that yeah, you know, I've ended out playing out there, so, which was just who you know, did you play not... for
1: who did you play for in India,
0: Paul? Uh Carol the Blasters. It was kind of a crazy, crazy time. Uh, amazing, amazing country in terms of what they what they do. Uh, say it's but the thing about the diamond, is great, but not when it's 35 degrees. And Wes and uh, Berber, uh, what do you call it? Like, yeah, getting on in their career. So uh, it was, uh, we didn't do as well as we expected, but it was a good, great experience uh, being out there. And the fans are amazing. So uh, say we were getting we were getting silly crowds in terms of 50,000, 60,000. Wow. Uh, say down in the south, beautiful part of India. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience to be back, you know, with Rennie and Berber and uh, Wes. It was uh, it was good fun to uh, to finish on the career there.
1: Fantastic, that's a great experience. And, and talking a great experience, Neil, your experience with the US national team under 19s must have been, you know, really something, like a highlight of your career.
2: Yeah, no, fantastic experience. Uh, came about in a bit of a. Bizarre way, really. I, I didn't expect it at all. Uh, just randomly one one Sunday, I get a I get a phone call, uh, which I kept ignoring because I didn't recognise the number. And then I get a text from a, a guy that I know saying, "Answer your phone, Brad Friedel's trying to call you." So I answer, and he's Brad, and he's you know, and he invites me down to the to the under 19s camp. Basically, um, you know, he had a, he had his goalkeeper coach that he that he used a lot, and uh, he was unable to to make the, the camp, and he. We wanted a goalkeeper coach to come in, so I was like, "Oh yeah, well, when's the camp." And he said, "Tomorrow morning, be in California." Well, at the time, I was in, I was living in Chicago. Got down there the next the next morning, and it was just nice because I'd never really. I think it was more of a compliment to my goalkeepers than it was to to anything else. Because you know, without without the goalkeepers being successful, I wasn't really on a pathway to to being you know to being in the working with the federation or. or or going back in necessarily to work with a professional club. But at that point, I was just focused on uh, working with with my goalkeepers, a big cat goalkeeper. And, you know, I worked in one of the local, like, grassroots clubs. Uh, But, you know, the the boys are getting success. Like, one of them went to the under-17s World Cup, which ties in nicely with what Paul was saying, because that was in in India. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and a couple of the boys uh, went on to be pros since... uh, but again, it was a compliment to them that I even got that opportunity. And then getting there and seeing that level with, with the national team and just seeing the yeah, just you know, obviously growing up in in professional football, you've seen that level, you've seen that standard, but it's different again when you're going in that going in it as a as a coach and having to be the one that's uh making sure that everything's to a to a set standard and you know working with that level of goalkeeper as well and 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 just been able to to get that to get that uh, coaching feedback and things from from guys like uh, Brad Field and and what what sort of lessons are you
1: learning you know this this is really to both of you you've both had great experience of, of playing under great goalkeeper coaches and and you've both been successful goal, goalkeeper coaches yourself what lessons did you learn from some of these guys and and what qualities in your mind make a fantastic goalkeeper coach
2: i tell a big one that i took from from even working with Brad, even though he wasn't in a goalkeeping coaching role, was just having doing everything short and sharp. As far as um, you know, your meetings with the players, uh, like any sort of video analysis, don't don't drag it out. Just just get to the point with them and and, and let them move on. So I, I enjoyed that. With uh, I worked a lot with uh, Mark Pruddle. Pruddle's had some nice uh, art- articles wrote about him, written about him by uh, you know like. Jordan Pickford wrote a nice article about him. Um, I'd say reproach. What I, what I took from him was just just that level of care, you know. I, I always felt as though... I never felt like uh, he was a, a coach and then the player. I felt more like, you know when you see a boxer and then they've got the, the guy in the corner and you go back to him and he's he's kind of rubbing your shoulders a little bit. And That's what I like when someone seems so bought into you. And I try and do that with my goalkeepers as well. I, and it's very difficult when you're working on the skill that I'm working on right now, a big cat goalkeeper from the, you know, from a camp and clinic standpoint. But when I was working at LAFC or working with a, and again, it's difficult on national team level just because you can do it, but you're only there with them for like a handful of days, right? You know.
1: But it sounds like the the, the technical side is obviously important, but just as important possibly is this connection that you've got and the confidence you can give your goalkeeper.
2: Yeah, for, for me for me the, the the confidence is is massive i think that the technical stuff you, you you know the question was like what makes a great goalkeeper coach i think there's a lot of goalkeeper coaches that can give you technical points but i think that that, that creating that bond and being, being able to you know give you confidence make you feel invincible when 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 it's needed um i think that's i think that's super important yeah
1: and what about you, Paul? I know you mentioned Alan Hodgson earlier, who was a, a legendary goalkeeper coach really in England. Um, and Any any others that spring to mind when you think of goalkeeper coaches?
0: You want to keep it down a bit, don't you? Because if I mention all the keeper coaches I've worked with, with the number of teams <laughs> I've played, it would be great. Now, Proud was with me at Huddersfield and say like his energy and his enthusiasm and yeah, you know, it's just that uh, you've got to have that work mindset. You have to do the work definitely. You have to have someone who's keen to do the work and, and get the uh the touches on the ball and the handling the technical bits out of it, out, element out of it. But you've also got to have that period of reflection and get that honesty and, and that relationship with your, your goalkeeper coach to go, Well, yeah, you yeah, you are gonna make mistakes, you are gonna do it, but you've got to bounce back. You can't follow mistakes with other mistakes and you've got to have someone who can pick you up on a Monday well. Usually Sunday morning for that cool down day. It's never. It's just having someone who who has that energy and drive to uh, to push you when you need pushing and to calm you down when when you're not. You know, I think it's it's a it's a fine balance of understanding people and how they all work. And not every goalkeeper works the same way. There's not a you know one size fits all to to goalkeeping because if you stop the ball, you stop the ball. I think for me, I was always interested in the technique and the detail and improving and, and constantly and some you know I worked with lots of different keepers that some days they'll just go out and, and get in the way of the ball and, and do what they do and you know aren't you know aren't too fussed about the technique and, and stuff like that. So it, it's everyone's different and that's the beauty of the game and everyone's opinion's different of how it's done. And I think if you if you if you kept a clean sheet, then that's all that matters uh to it and there's lots of different ways of doing that. And like you say, if a goalkeeper coach is there, he's got to be there with you for the whole season. He's you know, he's got to be there through his thick and thin and you kind of you win it you win as a group and you lose as a group and that's that's what people I think don't realise. It, it, imagine it's really hard on the on the camps for you, Neil, because you literally get, you know, one one or two games to, to get a result and you know, you've got to get everything through that and then it's a long break between you know, between games, but uh, for the for the keepers themselves, they'll be into their club stuff straight away afterwards and, and working with someone else who, you know, has probably got different ideas and and means of doing stuff. So it, it's to me it was always a matter of trying to absorb as much as you can from every person you worked with. And I think Tom I was saying to you about PH Michael, my first session with him was like you need to ask a question quickly, otherwise you won't train with us again. Because if you're not keen about learning and being the best goalkeeper you can be and being, you know, being part of this group, then what's the point in training? What's, what's, you know, what... And we would talk... I think the one I remember most was, you know, when you're doing side to sides and you turn and it varies over the years of facing the ball. Do you turn your back to the ball? Because it can be quietly quicker. Do you spin on your bum? Do you, you know, like, do you dive... you know, dive on your side and then you get back up. How quickly you can do that, and where's where's the time savings it can be made to get to the other top corner? And that was that was the the questions we were we were discussing on that like first session of uh, with Peter Schmeichel. Which for me it was like, well, I've been told to do it this way. That's why I'm doing it. And he's like, question it. Why, why do you do it that way? And we still agreed that it was you know to always face the ball because we needed to see where it was. But we didn't turn our backs and we didn't spin around. And do it like I've seen other keepers do, and it was—it's uh, what sticks in my head. That going forward, I do that with all elements of it, and still do it now. When I watch goalkeeping, you know, you watch the highlights back, and you look at things, and you go, oh, would I have done that? Oh, that's—that's that's good. Oh, I'd use that and uh, say my—you know—my goalkeeping now is, you know, revolves around five sides, so it's—it's uh, uh, it's nice to have that smaller goal. Uh, so you can go out so, and try
1: it. So with obviously training regularly with Peter Schmeichel must have been an amazing experience, and and I imagine that he was driving himself on, driving you guys on, and, and and helping you. But he's famous for that star save when he when he puts his arms and legs out and spreads himself. Did he did he encourage you to do that? Did he did he um, give you tips on that, or was, did he just leave you to to sort out your own technique?
0: Hey, for me, I. I was fortunate enough in that period, you know, it's like we've got tickets to the games, didn't we? So the teams coming to Old Trafford, we were always encouraged by ourselves, coaches, to go and watch who else is coming. So you get there early and watch the other goalkeepers warm-ups and go, you know, for me, for me as, as, a, as, a, as a goalkeeper and as a coach, it's like, oh, I like that exercise or I like that technique. I'll, I'll be a bit of him. I'll, I'll, and that works well with me and my body shape and my, The way I want to goalkeep, and I think you know, you're always learning, you never stop learning. I mean, I've done my badges uh, as well while I was playing because I think that's vital for any player that you know to do your badges while you're playing, it really helps your game. uh, And why leave it till when you're finished because you never know, Neil, when things are going to happen. That you know, I was lucky enough to delay it for 20 years, it's and it's just picking it up and having a notebook maybe around to, to jot these things down because you think, oh, I remember that, but well, what was it, you know, how have I, I practised it? or And that I think that's the traits I've seen with, with good goalkeeper coaches I've had, that they'll go, they'll go back to the, not necessarily book, it's probably a laptop these days, and, and go, oh, yeah, that session was there, let's put that one on, because I had this before, and, it you know, the experience from it, it's not just off the cuff all the time, you know, you're not just making it up as you go along, It's a, there is a process to it. and. Would you agree, Neil?
2: When you were saying about uh, always asking the question, and you've been doing that since you were you were playing, right? And and got that drunk into you from a young age. I think that that's something that I massively lack. I don't think I did ask the question when I was when I was playing, and as a coach, I think that's helped me massively. You know, like going back and asking those questions. So like asking the why, because I, I look at it all the time, like. Uh, and I'm, and I'm going off on a tangent here, but I, I, I just look at how a lot of goalkeeper training happens and then ask why, because there may be the style of play that the goalkeeper... Like, for example, if you're in an attacking team and your team want to build out from the back and you, you play with a high defensive line and you're, you're going to experience more one-on-one, balls in behind defenders and all the rest of it, and then I go and see the goalkeeper training session, and I see it very, very much, you know... Under the crossbar, catching a few volleys, stepping over a few cones and whatever. The, the why like, then the, there's a massive why, right? Well, why are you doing that when your team plays like like this? And there's no right. I know that there's no right and wrong answer, but I just think it's so interesting to hear someone who had such a long career, such as yourself, probably had it because you asked the why at such an early age, right? And and uh, a scholar from the from the start.
1: And speaking as a as an outfield coach. Um, you know, we sometimes we do let the goalkeepers just go off to the side, and we don't really include them as as much as we should do. Do you think, you know, as a goalkeeper, as a goalkeeper coach, that's something that that outfield coaches, first team
0: coaches, should do much more? Paul, uh, I used to love playing in the boxes. That was great fun, and uh, going in them, and you know, being involved with the players, and say keeping the keeping the two in the middle. You know, in in the morning, I think United had a if we, you know, the, what do you call those boxes? I just know them as boxes. Yeah, the, but
1: stuff? just for people that it's quite quite well known. Training used to start under certainly under Alex Ferguson's uh, managership that that they'd do boxes, which were basically about ten by ten um, squares on the ground, and you'd have like five v two, six v two, keep ball, and it would be really. Quite, I think called rondos now. You know, it's okay. fashionable to call them rondos, but they were called boxes many many years ago.
0: Yeah. So I that and to me working on your touch and, and playing on it because like you say the, the back pass rule was very much into force. That's how old I am now. Uh, but uh you, you had to be good on your feet and you have to be doing it. And I think it, it's something, you know, going back to your point, Neil, that I I'd, I'd very much say I was a scholar of the game. I always wanted to learn and, and develop and to me you, you practice what you do and to go back to Big Pete on terms, he did a a speak a, a presentation on his pro licence. It's part of your pro licence, you have to do a presentation. Uh, and he talked about goalkeepers being the only place on the pitch where you don't want them to express themselves. You don't want them to try anything new. You just want them to be able to do what they do day in, day out. Now, if you're a winger or an attacker, you want them to go express themselves, take risks and try something. And if it comes off brilliant, there's no consequence of that. You don't want your goalkeeper to be doing that. You you want your goalkeeper to you want to know what your goalkeeper is capable of, and you want him to do that. You don't want him to do anything else. You want him to know that you trust him to do that. And I thought that was very you know relevant point for in terms of coaches joining. You know, like wanting the goalkeepers to join in. Yes, I do want to join in, but I want to do what I feel comfortable doing. And if you want me to feel comfortable doing something else, then I need to practice that and not just turn up on Saturday and you go, right, we're playing out from the back because that doesn't happen because you're, you're asking me as a goalkeeper to take a lot of risk with players I don't know. If we haven't practiced it day in, day out, how do you expect it to come off with With a, with my mindset being that I'm not going to make a mistake? That's you know that's a goalkeeper's mindset is to go out there play the perfect game and not concede a goal. So you're therefore limiting the number of mistakes you're going to make. Pass it over to Neil. Uh, his
1: experience as a goalkeeper coach. Did you feel that you were integrated into the whole team plan, or did you feel that you were just over you know go over there, goal is, knock a few balls at each other and then we'll call you over when we have got a game or we need some shooting practice.
2: I think when I, I think when I'm when I've been there. I've been integrated quite well when I've physically been there coaching, but obviously they, they get a time, you know, depending at the level and, and whatever else, but where my goalkeepers, when I'm not there to fight for them, that they don't get that same level of integration, you know? I think, it, you know, I'll, I'll speak from my time at LAFC. Uh, the, the director of coaching there, Enrique, he was very, you know, we got him over from... Uh, his background had been—he'd been grew up in like the Barcelona like coaching system and and whatever else. And he, when he came to LA, uh, he was very big on you know the goalkeeper being a part of the the team training. So it actually changed my role quite a lot. I mean, it made me a bit more—it made me a bit more like a like an assistant coach rather than a goalkeeper coach, really, because we go and do our goalkeeping specific training in the beginning. But then we would go. But then we would bring it into the team, and I'd be in, in the team training with them. And I wouldn't just stand in the goal because sometimes my job would be to talk with the defenders. Because on game day, when I'm talking to the to the goalkeeper, we, they have to be in sync right with the with the back line. So that that kind of give me a bit of a bit of a different outlook on on how the goalkeeping position can can look, you know. Um, so no, that that in that regard. It worked out well, but yeah, definitely I think that there's a lot of that go go off to the side, go and hit a few a few volleys and you know, catch it and kick it type mentality when the reality is the goalkeepers want to be and they're footballers at the end of the day, aren't they? They all just want to... I feel like everybody just wants to be around their, their teammates and yeah, getting a little bit of extra goalkeeping care, great, but how much of a goalkeeping warm-up do you really need? Especially at grassroots level, What's going to be better for the goalkeeper? Go and take a few volleys, kicking the ball back and forth to each other or go in with the team and when they're about to go into goal, if you want to warm them up, just start off a little bit lighter with your shots, maybe hit a few into their hands, down the sides and then go live. I think that that's going to be more beneficial than having two two young kids go and kick, it, kick a ball at each other out of their hands.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And goalies always love joining in as well. Thinking the good at and the outfield positions and scoring a goal and oh brilliant, and
2: brilliant at it.
1: <laughs>
2: but if you were that good, you'd
1: actually you wouldn't be a goalkeeper. That's what I'm saying. If you're
2: that good, get all excited. But if you're that good, you won't be a goalie. Well, like, that's what, that's what I have to confess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, one again, one thing um,
1: I've noticed in the last few years about goalkeeping is it there seems to be more use of the feet, not only um, playing the ball out and starting play, but in saving the ball from going in the goal, you know, back when I was young, Pat Jennings in the seventies was the first goalie really to start using his feet on a regular basis. Whereas now you see a lot of goalkeepers using the feet to save shots and, and maybe even taking some leads from, um, ice hockey. I don't know if that's something that, that you're aware of or you've noticed and, and, uh, you know, how you feel about the, the changing technique of goalkeepers,
2: I, th- I think that the the, the foot saving stuff there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's just a case of you know when do you use that tool? you know do you use that I see some of the you know again I look at I look at goalkeeping especially when you're defending the goal. so if you say that there's if we look at goalkeeping like goal defense space defense and then offense right when you' gone when you when you offense being in possession of the ball and you're attacking the other goal. Uh, space defence being like crosses, balls in behind defenders, and goal defence predominantly being shot stopping and one-on-one. You you know, I I look at the shot stopping as though you're trying to give the the forward many, many options. So, you know, you don't, you want to be far enough, you want to be far enough down the line to take away some sort of angle so you've got a shorter distance to, to cover the goal, if that makes sense. So if the ball's on the angle, you want to be far enough down the line where you, you can re- you can reach the ball. But if you go too far down that line, now you, you're killing your own reaction time. You're giving the forward less options. So maybe you're saying, all right, well, the option is go over my head or, you know, you maybe stood slightly to one side. So yeah, go down this other side. And if you give somebody a few options, then it's it makes the decision-making quicker, right? Because they've got less options to think about. And then if you go further down the line, and they've got no options, that's one v one. So it's like going into a restaurant. If you go into a restaurant with a big menu, you take forever. It's difficult to decide. If you go into a McDonald's or some fast food restaurant, there's option one, two, or three. Boom, you take it. It's quick. And then if you go into my fridge and you open it up, there's no food there. There's no option. All right, <laughs> I've shopping. That's I
1: I'd I'd never, be. I'd never heard that, Neil. I'd never, and, and it does make sense because as a, as an outfield player. You'd think that the more options that you had when you were bearing down on goal, the better because you've got lots of different ways of scoring. But actually, that analogy with the menu, where the more options you have, the longer it takes to make up your mind. And then as a goalkeeper, you can, you can come out and take advantage of that. Whereas if you've only got one or two options, you are likely to make that decision quickly and execute and score.
2: Yeah. And that's why I think, like, you know, in the, so I'm going off on a tangent here from your footstep, but I'm just saying, like, that's why when you see goalkeepers, you know the old if you want to call it like more of an old school way of like coming out and sliding on your side on a one-on-one and then they that, yeah. that that's giving a forward an option right you've given the option just to dink it over the top of them and it's it's, a, it's an easy one uh so that would be a good example of what i'm what i'm talking about there. but yeah so going back to your foot save, i think when you you know you've reduced the space a little bit and you've got set and then yeah i think that anything with in and around your body why why do we have to the, the, the pace especially at the highest level is what I think we're referring to, to predominantly here when we, when we talk when we reference any sort of save that we see. We're talking about it at the highest level. The, the pace of the ball, again, the, the options that the forwards have and the ability that they have. I think that the the foot save is just an added tool that if, if it isn't in and around your body, like why not? And I think that the goalkeepers are getting so much better with it now. And the fact that they're training it—that's—I think that's the difference now. That we the goalkeepers are training for a foot save, and now they're learning like how and where to direct the ball when they when they are making this foot serve. Um It's not like the ball's just hitting your legs, right? You're actually you're saving it with your foot. It's it's the same as there's a difference between if you catch the ball or the ball you try to catch the ball and it hits your hands and and that's like a parry, or you make the decision I'm going to parry the ball. When you parry the ball, the ball goes ends up going far, and you can direct where you parry it. Whereas if you try and catch it, and it's just a, like a, I couldn't quite hold it, so I'll just parry it. You know, that's that's not the same. saying, I ain't catching these. I'm going to bang that out wide. So yeah. I think it's all about decision. So I think that the, the the foot surf can be really good as long as it's like a decision that's taken and it, it's applied in the right in the right area at the right time. That's another
1: that's another area as well that you talk about a parry in the old days. I suppose to say old days, but not that long ago when you had to, you wanted your goalkeeper to catch everything. You know, we were saying catch it all the time. And if a goalie didn't catch it, then you were disappointed as a coach. Whereas now, like you say, there, there are a lot more goalkeepers that that purposefully parry the ball, that that punch it out rather than catch it. And that's another example of the, the way that goalkeeper techniques have, have evolved in recent times. What What are your thoughts, Paul, on how goalkeeper techniques
0: have changed in recent times? So being like the scholar that I was, it was uh, the ball moves like 10 10 metres per second faster now than what it used to. So you've got a lot less time to kind of, well, it's on you a lot quicker and it's also a lot lighter. So catching it. and So if you try to punch a slower ball that's a lot heavier, you're not going to get the kind of accuracy or distance from it. And there's no advantage to it. Uh, the, you know, you might as well catch it and keep control of the ball. So that was the probably the reasons behind that. Now, if someone is shooting from ten yards away, uh, you you basically have got one hand or one foot or whatever's closest to the ball to save it. Because if they strike it as cleanly as they do, uh, then it. You're not going to have the time to to get two hands on it and uh, keep control of it. And uh, it is, you know, it's been designed purposely. The ball has been designed purposely to be harder for goalkeepers to save because they want more goals in the game. It, it's, you know, a known fact from the higher ups in the, in the game that, you know, nil nils are not very entertaining. TV doesn't pay for nil nils. TV pays the wages. The more goals we see, the more money. That that's going to be generated the bigger the game's going to be. So that's the accountant kind of talking there uh, <laughs> yeah. on that side of it. But, but the maths uh, of it as
1: well, Paul, the, uh... math, the maths is that the goals aren't going to get bigger. They're not going to increase the size of the goals. Well, the
0: goalkeepers have got bigger. But no, I would say the goalkeepers are probably getting smaller these days because they want quicker ones uh, who are better with their feet and, you know, they're more yeah. coordinated in, in terms of those long levers are, uh, are potentially, you know, I think, changing in the future that it'll be you know the amount of touches outside the box will be uh, or the amount of touches with your feet are going to increase and the amount of touches with your hands are going to decrease but also when you look at where the ball goes in the goal it goes in the goal majority of the time on the ground in the middle of the goal so that hence that's where your feet are so if the ball's flying quicker and the ball's still going in those areas and that's where goals are scored, then practicing those saves are gonna create better percentages and better stats in terms of your, you know, shots to save ratios and stuff like that, which say hence talk a lot about numbers and stuff like that, hence probably why I've gone into a currency and, and find that interesting <laughs> in terms of the way I kept goal was like what's the percentage play what you know if the ball's not near my box then it's not going in the goal you know it that was you know there's lots of different ways of, of keeping goal and say like you know saving them with your feet is one way but if the ball's never played to that person to shoot because he's well marked because you've spoken to that defender to to go tight to them then then that's another way of stopping a goal and it, it's just there's, there's different ways of doing things, and like you say, that that's a, a the game will change, the game will evolve, and you know teams play differently, and, and we, we see that week in week out. And say having no fans at stadiums is you know probably seeing the game change drastically very quickly because you've got that element of communication now uh, that when the stadium's full you don't have, uh, which it will be completely you know have to change again once we get fans back in stadiums.
1: Yeah, really good point, Paul. Um, but I want to now discuss some of the characters that you worked with and alongside at Manchester United. Talk about Tony Cotan. Come on, he was a character, Paul. Tell us yes, tell us what get, it
0: was like working with TC. So, you know what, we got sponsored by Vodafone and United sponsored by Vodafone at the time. So they give yep. us all phones. And then I used to get the week, well, weekends off because... Um, We'd play reserves midweek and he'd like, he goes, right, just take the weekend off, it, it's not a problem. And then I'd leave my phone on, having probably been out on the Saturday night and it'd ring like half seven, eight o'clock uh, Sunday morning and it'd always be TC laughing down the phone going, you haven't turned it off again, have you? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, what do you want? He goes, right, you've got half an hour training at nine. And he'd be like, right, okay. And so I'd get up, drive into training Always be on the last minute, and uh, we'd have end up having five asides because you'd want a second keeper. So you'd have the sub keeper, and then you want a second keeper. And because I was local, I was only 15, 20 minutes away from the clip. We'd go in or Carrington, and we'd go in and train. And the first half, like you're waking up, you're straight into it. It's a high level, high level five five-a-side. Great, great training session because you've got the six subs basically. But yeah, got five subs plus the six. It was five subs then. And you'd literally just train for half an hour, 40 minutes. And then I remember one morning, he'd phone me. He goes, right, you've got to come in training. And uh, it was like, you've got 10 minutes to get in. I was like, TC, I live 15 minutes away. Like, I've got no chance. And he goes, don't be late. Puts the phone down on me. So I've run into the cliff, got changed. And it's uh, between Christmas and New Year. Basically, a kit man's like, Gone, there you are, there's your kid, get changed. And he's Tony Cohen would normally stand like by the goalkeeping area with the goalkeepers, but he's gone and stood on the far side of the pitch next to the boss. So the cliff, he's made me, the lads are warming up, and he's made me walk all the way well, literally run all the way across the pitch and like apologize to the boss for being late. <laughs> so like, oh, great, like it's like I've not been late, boss, yeah, like it's not my fault. I was like, oh, like what's going on? And he goes you find straight away, you find being like, I'm like, oh, what you, <laughs> well, I was, not know what to say, like, 18 year old lad, like, like, you know, going, looking at Tony Colton to say something, come on, come on TC, say something, like, yo, know, you literally phoned me 10 minutes ago, and I'm here, like, I'm only like three or four minutes late, he goes, right, that's it, you've got to make me tea and toast for the next two weeks, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what's going on? And he goes, right, you're flying to Brazil tomorrow, sorry, no, flying to Brazil in two days. We're going out, you come in as part of the squad. I'm going, what's happened? Because as far as I knew, there was like Kev Pilkington, Nick Colkin, Paul Gibson, you know, Adam Sandler. There was like four keepers above me. And he goes, No, nah, you're 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 my third choice keeper for for Brazil. You you're coming out. So sort yourself out. Don't be lucky again. game. And off you go. And then like Yeah, so that's how I found out I was doing it. So I'm glad I kept answering my phone on a uh, Sunday morning. uh, So you went out to Brazil for the World Club Championship
1: and that's where you made your debut for Manchester United as well? Yeah, well, I was just going to
0: train and say playing five sides for the subs and all that. I was happy doing that and being part of it. And, uh, say, 10 minutes to go, we're playing South Melbourne in the Maracanã Stadium. It's absolutely rammed full of Vasco fans who are on afterwards, so there was eighty thousand people bouncing. The, the whole place is physically bouncing, um, and it's and he's going right. Get yourself ready, you're coming on. So, uh, what was minute out. was that? How long was it gone? So, the only thing I did, okay, just going to drop an eight. I caught the ball once and threw it out to Beckham, and that was that was my <laughs> debut done. So, and that's all that's all I did in the whole game uh, in front of eighty thousand screaming Brazilians. Uh, in the World Cup Championships, so that was like, you know, basically it was downhill after that, wasn't it? Wow.
1: <laughs> and, and just thinking, training—you know—you said about the high-quality fibre sides. So when you were when you were facing the, those top players, so you mentioned Beckham, but obviously you got people like Giggs, you have got Solskjaer, you've got Sheringham, Cole, and uh, Dwight York, Skulls, You know who were who are the best finishers there?
0: Who, when they got the ball, you think I'm not I'm not saving this. It wasn't, I was not saving this. It was more like I got 50-50 chance of getting the corner right. So, you'd, you'd, like, Ollie was unbelievable. He had both corners in his locker, like, either for both corners. So, he had a 50-50 chance. He was never going down the middle of the goal. So, you just got to go early and go to a corner. And you either get it right and save it and it looks great, or you get it wrong and you dive in the wrong way. So, it's just that that was the level it was at in terms of growing up as as a kid uh going in goal for them and like you say those four would start once they had enough then other people would come and get involved and like you say it might be Scalsy or um i think we had a few young strikers there that were half decent as well coming through that would you just go on from there and it was just like it was the best, it was one of the best educations you can have as a as a keeper because They were just so accurate in terms of how they finished and how they competed against each other. It was never like what I see a lot of is players going out and and shooting, you know, the same practising the same things over and over again and just trying to get the technique right and stuff like that. This is this was every every session was done at match pace, every finishing practice was done at match pace. And that's I think that's a key point in terms of how they trained and why they were so successful because they didn't know how to do it averagely. They only knew how to take a touch. You know, the touch had to be right and finish or the finishing first time. And it was, you know, that was, that was a the level. They did it with power and accuracy every single time. And say so as a, as a goalkeeper, knowing like growing up in the area, knowing what it was, you were buzzing to be part of it. And you, you, you're playing with a heightened sense of, of like, this is brilliant, Uh, you know, to be part of it and trying to, that challenge of, of, trying to stop them scoring. And, you know, I'd like to say I was successful stopping them scoring at times. It wasn't always the time. But, uh, you know, the the level of, like, competitiveness in terms of what it was, it wasn't like, you know, once we score, you're going in, that you might see at different training sessions, different clubs, you know. This was, like, first to miss, yeah. And and intensity
1: was, and like the driving each other on the, the level of competitiveness and the intensity because any any game between that group of players is going
0: to be very intense. It's going no one's gonna to want to lose. No, no, and that that was the thing. I think say you used to do the, the squad of sixteen and then the day before and we'd just have that squad and you go, right, who'd you pick first? <laughs> there you are, your captain. Who'd you pick first out of that that team that won the treble? <laughs> <laughs> who are you going for? You know who, who you, who, who's going to be your first pick? <laughs> wow, that's uh, incredible. Who but, do you choose?
2: You picked up on something there and again. I'm just bringing it to, to relate to youth goalkeeping here. There's a bit the goalkeepers that I'm coaching. They're always arguing between themselves, saying, "I oh, made that save because." And the high-level kids that, that, we, that I'm talking about here. But it's just funny. There's two boys, and they're always having a little dig at each other. And one of them always having a go at the other one saying, oh, but you, you, you saved that because you went early. But it, going back to what you're saying there, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm just bringing this up because it just happened the other day that they're always having a go. And you're saying that you had a 50-50 chance of, of saving these shots. So how much did you rely on reading the reading the body language of the player? Because you're seeing it at the ultimate level, like at the top level, there, right, with those, with those lads. So, like, how much of that had to be done versus just simply reacting to the to the shot?
0: It's understanding who you're up against and what you're doing. This is unopposed. Well, it might have been opposed, but this is this is when they're going to score regardless if you stand and wait they're going to put it in one corner or the other. So if you know you're coming up against a striker of that quality, then to me going a little bit early is a necessity you have to take. If you know if you're if you do that against a lesser quality player and they shank it down the middle and miss kick it down the middle, then that was never going to happen in that situation. Or it was less like you know like you had a really small chance of that happening. So therefore I wouldn't have gone early if that was, you know, like you you have to weigh up who you're up against in terms of the the level of, yeah, the level of striker, what their what their techniques are, and there's no there's no excuses in this day and age of not knowing who you're playing against because you have all the video analysis, you know what they're going to do, you know what their you know what the last five ten goals are, you know what they kind of enjoy doing, what they're good at, what they're not good at. And you know if they're on the stronger foot, if they're on the weaker foot, and as a as a, like a student of the game, that would be something that would be in my head about those players, and say that's easy with those four because you watch them day in day out. Everyone enjoys watching Teddy Sheringham, Holly uh, Andy Cole, Dwight York. You, you enjoy watching them, and as a as a fan and being able to understand, okay, you know that's what. You know, one of those players does all the time. So you you know what the outcome is going to be. And I think from an outside person looking in, the best players don't just do it on a pitch, like on a match day and it's a fluke that they've done it. You give Beckham a ball, a bag of balls and say whip it into the top corner. He'll do it 99 times out of 100 it's not a fluke. It, it, it's, it's what they want to do. It's what they do. It's why they're good at what they're doing. It And when they do it on a Saturday in front of 75,000, they've done it a hundred times before. It's not, you know, that's what you, you're coming up against and that's the, you know, the level of what they're at. So when you're saying about guessing and, and doing stuff, there's certain patterns that appear all the time. And therefore you can, you can learn when to take a gamble and when you not. And, you know, Alan Shearer always went down the middle, power as hard as he could. You know, he'd ac- you know, be accuracy, so you could, you know, rel- rely on a reaction. You know, if you've got someone who's going to bend it in the corners all the time, then you know to get there, you have got to go early. And like you said, they've got options to do that. So it, it's just understanding details to a next level.
2: Yeah, and did, did you change? Did you have to change your game? It depend on? Did you find yourself changing your game over the course of your career or not? in regards to
0: that. In terms of like how you play and how you approach the games uh, you, you for me I obviously went and started at the very very top and then ended up at the bottom of the league with Accrington Stanley where we were literally bottom of the league on February and uh, looking like we're getting relegated and you don't know what people are going to do you don't know what passes you know what the pitches are like you don't even know what the ball's like you don't know how many fans are going to turn up it, it's really very random and you are very much relying on, you know, there's very little video analysis. Uh, players are changing, managers are changing all the time down the lower league. So it's hard to keep track of stuff. So in terms of that aspect, I would have to prepare each game dealing with the unexpected. And it was a completely different type of football to, to what you might play in the Premier League, where you've got a whole week to prepare. You, everyone's, you know, done the video clips, you know what's coming up and, Yeah, they they work on different shapes, and you start seeing lots of similar patterns. So, yeah, you you have to adapt to your game to whatever level you're at. So, and it is something that, you know, I'd like to think I did well in terms of what it was. And it it wasn't a case of like, I'm going to play 330 odd games or 350 games, uh, doing the same thing that I learned as a 15, 16 year old, and that will be enough to to take you through. So, yeah.
2: just a common. It's, it's one of those. I suppose it's one of those things where I always tell that I always go when it comes to like a striker taking a shot or whatever. I'm always saying that there's there's a story. It's like reading a book, right? You, you kind of know the ending of the story if you've read all of the chapters. You kind of get what's going to happen at the end. Whereas if you only look at the ending, you've got you had no clue that that was going to happen and it's caught you off guard. So when the strikers body language, like how they're shaping up, knowing the player, the trends, you can kind of predict what the ending's going to be, right, which sounds as though at the top level, you you said that came in very, very useful.
0: I've got a 10-year-old son and now I'm, you know, if he wants to be a striker, I want to teach him in terms of a goalkeeping perspective, I'm teaching him to move it with one foot and shoot with the other because I know that's two clear actions and if you move it with the same foot and shoot with the same foot, you have to put your foot on the floor before you can shoot again so the goalkeeper can move and readjust. So there's little things like that that you can start picking up upon in terms of how it works. Uh, and therefore, where's the advantage in terms of, of what you're going to do and how you're going to manipulate the ball? So I don't know if you know, you, you're talking about that story. How do you, from a striker's point of view, how do you reduce that story to, yeah. to be more successful? And understanding when that happens, all the best being a goalkeeper?
2: No, just uh, obviously the way the way how I train, Paul, is a lot A lot of it's based on uh, probability. So, for example, mm-hmm. if we train from shots from outside the box, if the, if the touch is inside or behind, the goalkeeper will typically take depth because it's going to be like a whipped-in shot, right? Yeah. Uh, if the ball's touched down the line inside the box, goalkeeper reduce the space a little bit. If they take another touch, maybe we can make a one-on-one and, and so on and so forth if we're working on balls in behind defenders, trying to, it's hard because sometimes you don't have the district, the correct distances, but just kind of, you you picked up on it earlier saying about, um, well, if the ball's down the other end of the field, I know they're not going to score, so I'm going to go and stand in a position to yep. do so. So based on, you know, all, all these these factors, just every part of the training, so I, I break it down into stop and one-on-one, crosses, balls in behind defenders, build up, So playing out from the back end uh, and distribution stuff like from your hands, you you know, whether it's a throw or or kicking it. Um, So I break it down into that and then I do everything based on pretty much based on what the probable outcome will will be Um, and and train for that. And then try and give the, the goalkeeper a lot of just keeping it pretty live. So the goalkeeper, there's going to be variances in it. It's never going to look the same twice. Uh, especially if some of our lads kicking in the shanker everywhere so the um so yeah so I think it gives the goalkeeper a lot a a lot of good actions to see but what um like what what did you did you find that like how did did you like that type of training or did you like especially because I find uh there's an element of comfort right when you get to a certain age or a certain level where you might just want oh well. Ten clean volleys, or I want something. I want X number of something clean. Maybe more on game day. But is there anything that you kind of liked through training? Because I, I understand that with with my guys, um, it can, it can be frustrating training with with me at times because the outcomes might not be so clean. It's not. It's never predict. It's never really that predictable. It's predictable in the sense if you've read the if you've read the story of what we're doing, yeah. then it's predictable. But it's not the same, it's not saying like, oh, I'm going to throw the ball in the top corner, so run across and fly and dive and catch it, you know? So was there anything that you liked that was very predictable just to make you feel good, or would, did you like to go more live? How, how did you find? No, I think in
0: terms of, like, call it warming up your eyes and your technique was, you know, like you say, i need a set of straight catches. Uh, and then some lower shots and some dyes just to get my body, you know, warm and the movement actions. But then from there, I wouldn't want any, any, any save to be the same because it never is. It's never the same, you know. Same shot you save twice. I, I, I can't tell you. I've done exactly the same thing twice in a game before. You know, every game's different and. You have to be adaptable. But like you say, there's usually a story that usually build up to everything. And it, it's seeing those patterns and, and knowing what the likely outcomes are, which would be which would be the experience that people talk about as a goalkeeper as you get older, you're more experienced. And that's because you're seeing things happen more and more and you understand bigger parts of the story, I'd say, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, which is which is the nice way of, of describing it and like uh, you know, going back to Beckham, if you give him a bag of balls, he'll whip it in the top corner 99 times out of 100. Like, as a goalkeeper, you'll do lots and lots of things, and you'll get 90. You know, if you can get your level up to be getting the outcome you want 99 times out of 100, then that's going to be a great foundation to rely upon going into a game where you don't know what's going to happen and having that mentality. From it and in building those habits and those those things that you're taught as a young kid at United, that you know those are the brilliant basics, weren't they? I don't know if they still teach that, Tom, but uh, that you know that can be very much done with goalkeeping. But like you say, it they're all actions that can come in a, a random random combination. But each action you should be capable of doing uh, by the time you you, you get to the, the professional level
1: there's a, there's a common theme, and although you're talking about goalkeeping, there's a common theme that goes without field playing because i'm I'm very much against just teaching technique or coaching technique unopposed and just purely through repetition because it always comes with a decision. And you're saying that as well is that if you if you know that the ball is going to be thrown in the top corner, it's pretty easy to save it. so it, it's it's saving the ball in the top corner when you don't know it's going to be there. When it could be in the bottom corner, it could be straight at you. So it's it's teaching the techniques, but there's a decision attached to it as well.
2: But I always uh, appreciate when I come back to England is this, like I feel like a lot of like discussions happen about football, um, whether it's at, at our level where no one's playing anymore or whether it's between players, coach and player, coach and kids, players, older players and kids. It's just more of a conversation around football. And I think that, and, and giving people advice and little feedback. Um, I, like, what type of... And I, I've spent a, I've spent a few days at United here and there over the years as well, and I, I've seen it uh, in passing where I'll just hear a little bit of a feedback with whether it's in a small-sided game. I think they were playing... The, the one session I watched was in the... You know, like... Is it like the, the playground or something? So go oh, in, yeah, in the
1: cage, right? In the cage, yeah. Ca- yeah, playground in the cage, yeah.
2: And like, just, a, a, you know... Uh, i've watched a few different sessions and i just remember a couple of times like coaches passing by and telling a player just a small little detail and then moving on um whereas i still feel as though when i when i look over here and and, and not we're not talking about i'm not talking about mls academies here but just in general just feel as though there's a lot of like overcoaching like almost drilling especially i'm talking about goalkeeping so i'll say goalkeeping but they drill the goalkeeper to the point where it's like they're almost like they're almost worse than what they would have been if you just pulled them off the street, you know, like, and just let them play and just be, they've become very robotic. And I, I think the same, I, I see it with the field players a lot as well. You know, you see that, the, the, you know, like when the players dribble with the ball, you see a lot of them dribble and, like, be very stiff upper body because you can tell they've just dribbled round corners and been told to do these little moves without actually, like, playing against somebody and having to so use their upper body to throw somebody off balance or something like that. What what I suppose like what type of coaching styles have you have you found really really work in in your environments and Paul like especially as as an older as an older pro going down your career what what types of feedbacks and coaching styles have you found to be to be useful for you
0: I think I've had everything from you know the hairdryer treatment not Officer Alex obviously but other people trying to copy it and now uh, to you know. Trying to praise you and you know just give you positive feedback and I think from a personal point of view you know when you've made a mistake you know when you could have done things better and if you if you're genuinely obsessed and you care about the game and how you want to develop then that's the the biggest motivating factor and you know wanting to be the best and wanting to be better than you know everyone else or wanting to be the best kind of goalkeeper or person you can you know like the player you can be and Say so that's got to come within him because, like, no offense to the coaches, when you're out on that pitch, Old Trafford, it's nil-nil for me on my full debut. Sixty-seven thousand people there at the eighty-eighth minute, and coming out for a cross, and we're getting it's nil-nil against bottom of the league. It, you know, there's no coach there to tell you what to do, whether to stay on your line, whether to come and catch it. You know, how to distribute it quickly, slowly. It, are we happy with the draw? We're we gonna, you know, is there going to be a bollocking if we don't? Counterattack quickly we ended up winning the game in the 91st minute I think it took them to score it was a bit of a long
1: you must remember it Paul it's the only one it's the only
0: four appearance yeah. you made
2: so you've got to remember yeah. the score
0: no I don't mean the, the minute we score I knew it was really late <laughs> on in the game and uh, but in terms of you know like coaching and, and developing it, it it's got to come from within because you know there's only there's only you that's going to do those 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 extra bits that are going to count that are going to make that difference you you know your coach can go and drill you and give you all the work to do but if you don't reflect and learn from that and understand you know the mistakes and have that you know drive to to really push you on and and seek additional knowledge ask better questions I think you know that was one of the first jobs coming out of football was like what uh, motto was to ask better questions and I can understand that there's like you know you can't ask a question and we can discuss stuff but how do you ask better questions how do you get the most out of yourself your goalkeeper coach you know the people at the club because it's not just the goalkeeper coach now is it is you know you've got the video analysis guys if they're cutting the clips wrong you know if, if their camera angle's just zoomed in on you making a save and you can't see the bigger picture you know for me I want the camera angle right behind the goal quite high up so I can see what happens because I want to see you know I want to be able to go back 10 steps to read the story and go, right, is my positioning right for step number 10? Not step number one and two, you know, step number 10 before the ball's actually struck, if, if that order makes sense to you. that That's, you know, you've got to work with everyone to try and get the most from from your environment. So that would be, a, you know, I don't know if I've answered the question or not, but that's the, you know, the way you can, you can help as as much as possible. But like you say, the coaches are there to help you. If they don't understand you and you just are happy to to sit there and do the drills, then that's great. But don't be afraid to turn around and go, you know what, Neil? I'm happy doing that, but I need a bit of this. Oh, I've been thinking about that. And you don't have to have the answers. But if I give you some information as, as a coach and me as a coach receiving it and the player goes, I want to be better at this, you can then work with that. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, a different, it's a different starting point than going, I've watched you in games. This is what I think. Do you know what I mean? I
1: yeah. think a lot of coaches get, get dragged into coaching for the gallery, coaching to save their job, coaching to impress the boss, coaching to impress parents. Whereas what Paul just said there, that you need to help. So you should be coaching to help. So the scenario that you were saying earlier, Neil, is where it's quite relaxed and, and it's a, very much a game situation. And, and again, I, I coach most of the time in game situations, and then you're there to observe. And if you observe something and you see a way that you can help, then then you deal with that situation. You don't try and manufacture situations. A lot of the, the coaching courses, you've got to get through certain points and you're almost manufacturing a situation in a game in order to bring up a point. Whereas I think that's false. You've got to be honest and you put players in certain situations and then give them feedback that will help them and and develop that relationship between you, um, rather than, like, I say, putting on fancy drills that might look great but are not really effective for anyone. Um, and it's that that genuine care that you've got for a player and wanting to help them and get better. I think that is is the motivating factor.
2: Yeah, I like, I like that. I like that uh, point about asking the, the questions or just having the players having a voice. I think that that's so important for. Again, I'm taking. I suppose it applies to apply for any level, but. The earlier you can get it into the kids, I think that it's. Uh, I think it takes you've, you've got to be rather insecure if you don't want as a coach if you don't want your players to ask questions about well well why are we doing this right I think that that's I I always want my players to ask me why so then I can explain to them well this is why and this is why I think it's the right thing to do right now. You know, so see,
0: like, taking it to the next level from that, I'd like to see the kids push the boundaries and go you know right put your foot like you know if you say in a race for example right on the line if i'm putting my if i'm on the line like my literally my back studs on the line and my first foot's as far forward as i can get you know to do it whereas most kids take behind the line or on the line to be behind the line and they, you know, they've got the front foot on the line ready to go i'm looking at how i can Maximize every situ- situation and, and manipulate it to make it better and give me a higher, higher chance of winning. You know, like, I can cheat. I think, yeah, I can cheat. Gee, cheat? No, <laughs> <Okay>. cheat. <laughs> you just slow. correct you, now.
2: You've got to be you're correct start. as a captain <laughs> <laughs> to do that. We, yeah. There's no, no grey area in the county, right? No, we interpret the rules <laughs> as best as we can in our favour.
1: You're thinking, I'm the goalie, I'm the slowest here, so I've got to take a step <laughs> forward here, otherwise I'm going to get embarrassed.
0: I wasn't slow. I just couldn't run for 90 minutes, actually. We're you know, when you do the doggies, very fast. You know, when you do the doggies, I can accelerate and de-accelerate as quick as I was fine. You know, in doing the 5, 10, 15 yarders, those not a problem. I'd win, i get quite a few gold medals in them. Like, you know, a bit of self-praise. But <laughs> certain- medal, behave yourself. We're doing, those- doing those horseshoes at the cliff. Oh my god, I'd last one doing a horseshoe at the cliff. You dead for me after that. I definitely wasn't designed to do that. So all right. Well, I think
1: I think bearing in mind we've got on to Paul Rishupka's running ability now. It's probably about time to end this uh, podcast. Yeah. And I just uh say thanks so much gents brilliant conversation about all things goalkeeping obviously we we touched on quite a bit of Manchester United as well which is a lot of fun Um, but Neil and Paul thank you very much for your time and I hope everyone enjoyed listening to that conversation and and if you've got any questions if you've got any comments uh, that you'd like to ask us please send an email to podcast at goplaysoccer.com and we look forward to seeing you on the next podcast Thanks for listening, and if you have a question or comment for
0: us, or if you'd like to take part in one of our podcasts, please email podcast at goplaysoccer.com. Hooray!